with Abram in chapter 14 of Genesis. Uh, we're going to see kind of Abram's additional adventures with Lot. Now, if you remember, I've said this a few times now, Lot was never supposed to have been there. He was part of the father's house and your people that Abram was supposed to leave behind in Haran. But he takes him with him, and uh, we're going to see that doing so is an ongoing problem uh, for Abram. Uh, those of you who are old enough may remember the names Roger Clinton and Billy Carter. You remember them? Okay, and everybody laughs, right? Because the only reason we know these guys' names is because their brothers were president. You know, some of you may remember Billy Beer. Remember Billy Beer? It came out, Billy Carter, you know. I've tasted a lot of beer, and this is the best beer I've ever tasted. I want to think you'll like it too, right? Uh, that was Billy Carter's deal, right? Millions and millions of cans of Billy beer were, were sold, apparently. I never had any, um, a fact of which I'm very glad. Um, <laughs> apparently, it, it tasted about like he acted. Uh, um, but in any case, um, you know, these guys became famous because they're kind of the the what happened to that guy you know his brother became president and then his and then you got this fella over here who's kind of well you know definitely the, i don't know if he's the black sheep but he's definitely got a grayish tint to him right uh and you know the, the drug addicted alcoholic brother of the president right uh this is the type of guy maybe you some of you have a relative like this don't tell me their name uh, in case they are here this morning, but uh, but you know somebody who is a relative of yours that is always there when they need you, right? <laughs> uh, and Lot is kind of he's kind of the Billy Carter of the story of Abram. He's always there when he needs Abram to bail him out, and uh, Abram does bail him out this week. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles, uh, chapter fourteen of Genesis. Now, there's going to be a lot of names in here, and, you know, those of you who are parents or maybe about to be parents, you'll want to pick some of these out maybe for your kids. Uh, at this time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Cato-Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bircha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. For 12 years they had been subject to Cador Laomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. And in the 14th year, Cador Laomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephites in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shava Kirathiam, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned and went to and Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddim against Kedor-Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariat, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. And the four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their 
food, then they went away. And they carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. And one who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eschol and Anar, all of whom were allied with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them. He routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. Now, uh, this is a section you're going, this, what is the relevance of this? Okay, I know that that's what some of you are thinking. And what's described is very typical of ancient warfare. Uh, in Abram's day, civilization is just beginning to form. Abram's uh, somewhere around 2000 B.C., uh, really before the major world empires really begin to form. There's not that many people, relatively speaking, on the earth. And uh, what you have is the beginning of the formation of these little city-states. And so you, ha you would have, you know, not the city of Peoria, but the kingdom of Peoria uh, and the, say, the kingdom of Chillicothe. And so if you were the mayor, uh, you know, you weren't elected, but if you were just the, kind of the baddest dude in the place, you became king. Uh, and uh, you'd have, like, the king of Chillicothe and the king of Princeville and, you know, the, the king of Sparlin. You know, he's a little down on the list. Um, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> um, you know, the king of Hopewell, you know, maybe he's a little higher up than Sparlin. You know, I don't know, but uh, but you've got all these little little bitty communities and kings that rule over them, okay? And obviously, if your kingdom is bigger, you're a little more powerful because you have a little more, you have more resources, you have more people to put in the army, you have more uh, money to pay for armaments and so forth. And off to the east, the the some of the major world powers are beginning to form up, and we don't know where all of these places are. But we know that Shinar, as an example, is another name for what became Babylonia. And this, with its capital, it's the city of Babylon. And Babylon was one of the first major world empires. Uh, Elam is this kingdom that's off a little further to the east in what's now modern-day Iran. And, um, and they're a world power. In fact, they're probably, at this time, the major uh, kingdom in the Middle East. The the, uh, the empire of Elam, and Elam rules over this whole area. And in fact, uh, within Canaan and on the other side of the Jordan, uh, they have all these little subject city states. And the kingdom of Elam has these powerful neighbors, you know, Shinar and Goyim, and these other these other uh, places with kings over them that are all allied with him. And then all these little city-states over in Canaan and on the other side of the Jordan. And, but they're a long ways away. And human nature being what it is, uh, they decide, well, you know, we're tired of living subject to this fellow. Maybe we can get away with rebellion. So they do. They rebel uh, in the 12th year of their being subject to him. And it takes about a year. They have a, about a year of independence because it takes him a while to get his stuff together and his people and to come over and 
already conquer them. And what happens is, uh, you you don't necessarily need to know all the geography, but what happens is these guys kind of sweep down the east side of the Jordan in what's now modern-day Jordan, and then they kind of swing around the uh, Dead Sea, and then they they come back around to Sodom and Gomorrah, two of these city-states that they had ruled that have rebelled, and they sack those two cities and take all of the stuff and the people, and they're hauling all this stuff back into captivity. And then they kind of head north up the west side of the Jordan, and Abram catches up with them around Dan, which is at the far northern border of what later became the nation of Israel. Um, so that's kind of the geographic area. And in the, and in the process of all this, uh, one of the people who gets taken captive is, of course, Lot. Because what's happened is, is that between last week where he pitched his tents towards Sodom and this week, he has actually moved in to Sodom. And so uh, I just want to stop right there for just a second and just focus on Lot for just a minute. Because what we're going to see, you know, last week, chapter 13, Lot pitches his tents towards Sodom. This week. He has moved into Sodom. In a few weeks, we're going to see him again in chapter 19, where he's not only living in Sodom, but he's gotten a wife from there, and he's had children with her, and they begin to adopt some of the norms of the city in which they live. And so Lot is beginning his descent into deeper and deeper into sin. And, you know, he started off near it. Now he is in it. And I think what I want to emphasize is this, that sin has a deeply attractive power to us. And the thing is, is that we think that we can get up to the edge of it many times and suffer no ill effects. But the reality of it is, is that it draws us and it calls to us. Because we get used to where we are, and then the next step doesn't seem that much worse. And then we get used to that, and it doesn't seem that much worse to go a little further and a little further. And it's a deep, sin has a, has a deeply seductive hold on our hearts, just like it did with Lot. And so we aren't told exactly how Lot came to live in Sodom, actually, you know, as opposed to out just outside of it. But it may have started like this. You know, well, you know, I'm close to town. I'm living out here in a tent. I'll just go into town for some supplies. And he goes and gets some stuff and comes back out, and nothing bad happens. You know, sure, there are some wicked people there, but, you know, they, they make good stuff. So, you know, then it's a little longer trip. And then it's a, you know, well, we're staying overnight. And then... Pretty soon, he's going, you know, I'm a wealthy guy. I could, why stay out here outside of this place in a tent when I could move into town and have a house and be out of the weather? And pretty soon, he's moved in. And sin is going to start to have an influence on him, and he gets caught up in all that's about to happen to this city. Uh, the Bible says, flee, flee from immorality. But we all think that we are strong enough. We all do, just like Lot did, 
that we can hang out for a while, we can move, at, we can move near it, we can have a discussion with it, and it's not going to bite us. The Bible says, flee. And Lot didn't flee. And pretty soon, he's moved in. And his foolishness winds up costing him something here. I mean, anybody uh, like the idea of being captured and then carted off as a slave? Anybody wanting to sign up for that program? Not me. And he has no way of knowing that Abram is going to come to his rescue and be successful. That is, in fact, what happened. But, you know, when you get carted off into slavery by the most powerful empire of the day, your chances of escaping from that are somewhere between slim and none, and slim packed his stuff. And his, his, uh, his decision here to move into this place is going to cost him. And later on, he's going to move back, and it's going to cost him even more. It's going to cost him everything he has. And Abram hears about it, and so he gathers up the guys that are allied with him. Abram, by this time, has become a very wealthy man. He is living uh, at this oasis uh, near the, what's called, it says, near the great trees of Mamre. Mamre is actually the name of a guy uh, who's an Amorite, a Canaanite, that Abram is allied with. But Abram has 318, it, it calls them trained men. Now, this is the only time that, that expression occurs in the Old Testament, but in Egyptian literature, Egyptian, ancient Egyptian and Hebrew are, are cognate languages. In Egyptian literature, it refers to trained mercenary type soldiers. So this is Abram's bodyguard, in other words. Now, what kind of a wealthy man do you have to be to have over 300 guys whose job it is to protect you? He had a lot of stuff. He was a wealthy, wealthy man. He was—he would have been, you know, a, a sheik or an emir, you know, in today's Middle East. This, he's a wealthy guy, and he's got these 318 fellows who uh, are part of his household, and he takes off with them after this retreating army. They've swept through, raided everything, and then they're headed back home. They're going north. And so Abram says, all right, guys. Strap on your sword, grab your spear and shield, and let's go. And let's go get them. This is a bold maneuver. And he catches up to them, and they go to war, and Abram is successful. And he's able to recapture all of the plunder and all of the people and his nephew Lot. Now, is this a normal victory? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say probably not. You know, you don't take 300 guys after an army normally. But that, but Abram does, and God protects him and blesses him, and he has victory. And, I mean, he's going after five kings. Think about that. Or actually, I'm sorry, after four kings. He's going after four kings, one of whom is the king over the mightiest empire, and it's like, all right, guys, let's go to war. And they go, and they win. God is protecting. Now, the next two sections of this chapter are pretty interesting. 
Because what you're going to see is you're going to see a contrast between two kings that meet up with Abram after the battle is over. And you're going to see a total difference between how Abram responds to the one and treats him and is treated by him and how he responds to and is treated by and treats the other one. Okay? So the first one we're going to see is uh, this man, Melchizedek, who is a very significant figure. We, he gets four verses in Genesis, a verse in Psalms, and three chapters in the book of Hebrews. Okay, so hang on for this guy. After Abram returned from defeating Kador Laomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, all you know when you look at when you look at this little story that little snippet those four verses where melchizedek is part of the story it doesn't seem like that significant of an of an incident okay you've got the guy who's the mayor of jerusalem essentially coming out pronouncing a blessing on abram and then abram gives him a bunch of stuff what's 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 the deal with that why does he then get Mentioned in Psalm 110, which happens to be, by the way, the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. And why does he get three three chapters worth of discussion in Hebrews, chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven? It's just this this random little story. Uh, well, there's some peculiar things about this guy Melchizedek that are worth noting. Number one, he comes out of nowhere. I mean, I, I've just read you all of the verses up to this point where he shows up. Has he been mentioned anywhere in any of those previous 16 verses? No. He comes out of nowhere. On top of that, genetically, he comes out of nowhere. I mean, what's one of the most common features of the book of Genesis that we've seen up to now? A genealogy, right? And so and so begat so and so, and this and every person who's a major character in the story gets introduced with a genealogy that goes on for half a page. Every single person. Melchizedek is a very major figure in the Bible, but he gets no genealogy. Why is that? In fact, the writer to the Hebrews makes a big deal out of this fact that there is no genealogy. It says without father or mother, without descendants without beginning of days or end of life. He comes out of nowhere, does his little deal, and then disappears. He gets no introduction, no conclusion. He's just here for this, this little section. And on top of that, uh, his name literally means king, Melchi Zedek, means king of righteousness. And the place that he's introduced as being from is king of where? Salem. Salem is the word for peace. 
who's king of righteousness, king of peace, from nowhere, with no genealogy, no beginning, no end. And on top of that, he is a king priest. He's mentioned as king of Salem, but he's also what? Priest of God Most High. Now, being a king priest is a big deal. It's very common in the ancient Near East that if you were the king, you were also the high priest. Just as in modern-day England, if you are the king, you are also technically head of the Anglican Church. The king priest. Now, in Israel, the nation that's going to descend from Abraham later on, there are no king priests, none. In fact, there were a couple of guys who tried it who lost their kingship over it. Saul was the first one. Remember, he offers sacrifice, 1 Samuel 15. He offers sacrifice because Samuel is, is delayed. And he says, well, I was offering sacrifice. And what's Samuel telling? To obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Your kingdom is going to be snatched away from you and given to one after my own heart. And then it goes to David. And then there was another guy who was a descendant of David named Uzziah. And Uzziah was a good king. But one day he decided of his own initiative to go into the temple and burn incense there. He went into the most holy place to the incense altar to come before God. He thought this was a great scenario. Eighty priests follow him in and say, you better not do that, son. It's a bad idea. You're the king. There's a distinction between those of the line of Judah who are, the, who, who are able to hold the kingship from, through the line of David and those who are of the line of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi, who get to be the priests. He gets in there with his censer to burn his incense, and he is immediately struck with leprosy. And they hustle him out, and he is eager to leave because he knows that God is, is judging him for his sin, for arrogating to himself the role of priest, though he is king. And Melchizedek is never, ever able to enter into the temple. I mean, Uzziah is never, ever able to enter into the temple again as long as he lives because no one with leprosy is allowed to come to worship. Now, so Melchizedek is a king priest. And the inter another interesting thing here is that Abram immediately recognizes this man, Melchizedek, as his spiritual superior. And so he gives him a tenth of everything he has. Now, this is a guy with a 318-member bodyguard. So this is a substantial amount of stuff. I mean, Oprah only has two bodyguards. And that woman's a billionaire. He gives him a tenth of everything that he has. We have no indication that Abram even knows this guy prior to him showing up here after the battle. And he gives him he gives to Abram bread and wine, which is the the communal meal for worship. Where did we get that idea? It goes back a ways, right? And 
he gives him, Abram gives him 10% of all he owns because he is priest of God most high. Because even though God is working through Abram to found a nation, God is also at work among the nations, even then. And so while God has got this plan that's running through Abram, he's also got other people that he is reaching. And one of them is this man, Melchizedek, who is priest of the, the one true God. And Abram recognizes him as a priest and gives him a tenth. And and if you look at, and if you bring this over into the New Testament, you know, a lot of a lot of Bible scholars will tell you, and I, I don't happen to agree, but a lot of Bible scholars will tell you that this person, Melchizedek, is actually a theophany or an appearance of God in the Old Testament because of the unusual characteristics that he has. I think he's it's probably not that. I think he's an he's just a regular guy who happens to be the worshiper and priest of the true God and happens also to be king of, of Jerusalem at that time. But there are some interesting things about this guy that as you look at your New Testament are very significant. I mentioned already that he is a king priest. Jesus is a king priest. But Jesus could not hold a priesthood uh, according to his natural lineage, right? He's of the tribe of Judah. And as the writer of the Hebrews says about that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. The kings come through the line of Judah, but not the priests. They come through the line of Levi from the descendants of Aaron. So how does Jesus get to be a priest? Well, he's from a different order of priesthood. He's of the order of Melchizedek that includes all nations. Even before there is a Jewish race, there is, there are people who are priests of the of the one true God, of the and the writers of the Hebrews says he's of the same order as Melchizedek, able to be a priest for the whole world. And on top of that, the priesthood of Aaron was inferior because in Jewish thought you could never be greater than your father. And so if Abram offered a tenth of everything, indicating that he saw that Melchizedek was spiritually superior to him, then the one who was born many generations later, Levi, and many generations after that, Aaron, could never be greater than Abram. And Abram offered sacrifice, so therefore his descendants has an inferior priesthood to the one that Melchizedek held. And so the writer to the Hebrews says that this... Um, that this kind of priesthood that Jesus holds for us is a superior kind to the Aaronic priesthood. You also see that um, that there is a, that this sharp distinction between kingship and priesthood is going to be abolished, and it is abolished in Jesus. Uh, you see that, uh, like Melchizedek, Jesus is eternal without beginning or end, without ancestors, without descendants, just like Melchizedek. You see that Jesus, like Melchizedek, is the true king of righteousness and a king of peace. And because of all this, um, we're meant to... We're meant to to be able now to look back at all of that and see that Abram is being blessed by God and he is going to be a blessing to all nations. We are meant to see that that 
the priests of God that were around in Abram's day recognized God's blessing on Abram. But that the plan of God, even though it gets narrower with Abram, you know, God starts working mostly through a nation that descends from Abram. But that it was always wider than that. You know, we tend to think as we read our Bibles that, well, only people who came through the line of Abram were saved in the Old Testament. But that's not what we, that's not the reality of it. The reality of it is, is that God's plan always was that the whole world would come to know and worship him. And in Melchizedek, we see an example of God doing that, of God working with and saving and calling out people from all nations, not just those who belong to a certain genetic descent. A lot of good stuff in that. All right, now let's look at this, uh, this interaction on the other side with the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to our Lord, to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I have made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. To Aner, Eskel, and Mamre, let them have their share. Well, what's going on here? Well, Abram, as the victorious general, was entitled to a significant share of the plunder. And Bera, the king of Sodom, offers Abram a pretty appealing deal. Keep all of the stuff that you want, even though it belongs to the people that you've recaptured. Uh, Keep all of the stuff that you want and just give me back the citizenry. But if Abram accepts, what will happen is this, is that Abram will become a vassal of the king of Sodom. In other words, if, if you understand kind of a feudal society, you've got the king and then you've got nobles underneath him, and the nobles owe their allegiance to the king because he has given them a grant of a certain amount of property and possessions. And Abram knows that if he accepts this stuff from the king of Sodom, what's going to happen is he's going to effectively form an alliance where he is subservient to, afterwards, the king of Sodom. And Abram wants nothing to do with that. He doesn't want anything to do with the king of Sodom or anything to do with him. And he knows that God is capable of blessing him far beyond anything the king of Sodom has got to offer. And so he says, look, the food that we ate on the way to and from, you can pay for that. And you, if you, the guys that went with me want to share, that's fine. They can have it. But I won't take a shoelace. I won't take a thread of anything that belongs to you. Now, this is a very interesting thing because think about this. Let's say that someone were to, you were to have a great victory in battle and someone were to offer you the equivalent of millions of dollars and say, you can have it all. You just have to follow me and serve me afterwards. How many of you would go, well, I don't know, let me think about that. 
<laughs> okay. Abram says, I won't take anything. You're not going to be ever able to say that you, in your wickedness, ever blessed and benefited me. I'm going to get my blessing from God. And now, if you look at the contrast here between Abram's interaction with these two kings, Abram voluntarily offers and gives away 10% of everything he has to a king who appears out of nowhere. But he won't accept anything from a king who could give him more wealth. And note the contrast also between Lot and Abram. Abram will have nothing to do with the king of Sodom while Lot is living there under the rule of this guy. And I think that the contrast between Abram and Lot gives us a lot that we can apply. Remember that Peter says that that Lot was righteous Lot. Now, he's living in Sodom, so his righteousness is tarnished a bit. But Peter nevertheless calls him righteous Lot, and he says that Lot was tormented in his righteous soul day after day by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. It's not that Abram was a man of faith and Lot wasn't. It's that Abram, um, and let's remember too, Abram, on the relative righteousness scale, I don't know where they come out. You know, last week, Abram was, uh, was selling off his wife to another man. Okay, so it's not that one is this moral paragon and the other is kind of somewhat less than. No, these are both human guys with sin natures. They're both people of faith. They're both followers of the true God. But nevertheless, he does have, Abram has his shining moments, and this is one of them. And he recognizes, I mean, one of the things about this is that he recognizes the right guy as a man of God and honors him. And he also recognizes the other king, the king of Sodom, as a wicked man and runs away from him as fast as he can. And Lot does not appear to know the difference. One of the most dangerous, dangerous things about our society and the world that we live in is that there is a lot of stuff going on out there under the rubric of so-called Christian behavior, Christian books, Christian churches, etc. And a lot of times what is out there, and we talked about this with Second Peter, a lot of times what is out there is deadly and dangerous. And lack of discernment is epidemic in the uh, in the evangelical Christian church. I mean, you can buy stuff at the Christian bookstore that is flat-out heretical and wrong. But nevertheless, it's sold at Berean or wherever you're buying it from, CBD or Amazon or wh- what have you. You can buy it, and they, it's published sometimes by Christian publishers. Lot has no discernment. Abram, at least here, has some discernment, and that's a very good thing. Abram would rather have nothing than partner with a wicked man, even if it meant great riches. And I think that in this, there are two principles for us that I want to close with these. First of all, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I didn't invent that. Jesus said it first, so I won't take credit. But it's a good and true principle that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Abram was able to sacrificially give to honor God in the worship of God, and his sacrifice reveals his heart. 
he wanted to worship and honor God. And so he sacrifices to support the worship of God through the priest Melchizedek. I have said this before, and I'll say it again, and I'll probably say it until I die, until you're long past tired of hearing me say it. But if you show me your checkbook and your day timer, I can tell you what you value. I can tell you where your treasure is. Because your time and your money are the two most scarce resources that you have. And where you choose to spend those two things tell you where your heart is. And what your tre- where your treasure is, the things that you can't get more of, there your heart is also. And I'm not going to go around and ask to see anybody's checkbook. Okay, none of my business necessarily, uh, and I'm not going to, you know, get like a, you know, satellite cam and follow you around. Okay, but here's what I'm. Here, let me ask you: You have the Holy Spirit also, and as you pray and seek the Lord, ask Him to show you what does where I spend my time and money reveal about where my treasure is. What does it show about my heart? And look at those things, look at where you spend your time, look at where you spend your money, and ask yourself this question, is what you are giving your life for worth it? Because you can only spend your life going forward, and you don't get to back up and redo anything. And we are all spending our life on something. Is what you're giving your life for worth it? Abram will give up great treasure for the worship of God. And he will take nothing from a man of wickedness, even though he's earned it. Is what you're giving your life for, what you are sacrificing for, worth it or not? Last question, and then I'll get out of your hair for this week. Is there anything so precious to you that you will live with evil to gain it. Comfort and prosperity were important enough to Lot that he would put up with living in a city so wicked that God personally and directly destroyed it. It's one of only two places, the other one being Gomorrah, the neighboring city, that God ever personally, directly, immediately destroyed. This is a wicked, wicked city. But comfort and prosperity are so important to Lot that he will put up with the torment in his righteous soul to live there, to gain comfort and prosperity. And I don't know about you, but many times I have been willing to sacrifice being righteous and right before God in order to gain something else. And people have different things on their lists. You know, sometimes it's approval from others. Sometimes it's honor and prestige. Sometimes it's a particular title or position at work. Sometimes it's sexual contact with somebody else. Sometimes it's whatever. You're willing to sacrifice a whole lot to gain whatever you value 
And if there is anything that you value more than the righteousness and glory of God, someday that thing will become a snare which destroys you. So let me ask you again, is there anything so precious to you that you will live with evil in order to gain it? If there is, you need to repent. Put that off. Bring it to the Lord. Turn from it. Reject it. And be restored. Let's pray.